0: Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, episode seven, where we have five hundred plus defendants. So this week, I don't know if it's really a, it's not a celebration, but it's a milestone. So uh, first off, if you're new to the podcast, um, this is Scott Kuhn, and this is the Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to examining the events of January sixth, twenty twenty-one, in Washington D.C. So this past week, the Department of Justice announced that they had arrested the 500th suspect in the Capitol insurrection investigation. So I thought it would be a good time to assess where we are in the process of uh, really developing this investigation uh, and also um, how we're processing it as a nation. Um, We'll begin by returning to episode one, in which I established as one of the objectives of this podcast, the goal of tracking the development of cases. I've spent a lot of time reading charging documents, news reports, going through the names and the photos, sifting through the stories of the defendants, and in the course of this podcast itself, uh, we looked in depth at one defendant, uh, Shane Leaden Jenkins, who I took as a kind of a case study of someone who's facing allegations of violence in the Capitol insurrection, uh, but yet who isn't uh, affiliated with one of the gangs that formed the Vanguard of the Capitol attack. Um, and on that subject, we've already talked about one of those gangs, the Proud Boys, um, the most numerous of the uh, gangs that were actually uh, spearheading the attack on Congress on January 6th. And of course, the other one being the Oath Keepers, which I plan on uh, talking about in a future episode. Uh, episode four, we looked uh, specifically at those defendants who um, had been called by Representative Clyde of Georgia, uh, tourists, right? Uh, And again, sort of mockingly, I entitled that episode, um, misguided tourists. Um, We won't talk too much about those people uh, from, from here on out, because I think actually we may be done with them, as we'll find out later in this episode. In episode five, we looked at defendants who have established ties to the Republican Party in some official capacity, so... These are elected officials, uh, like people like Chloe Griffin. Um, These are also relatives of elected officials and even someone who is uh, legitimately what one could call Republican conservative establishment royalty uh, in the personage of Elbrant Bozell IV, uh, who faces felony charges. In episode five, we looked at the defendants uh, who, sorry, um, so in all this, I've been trying to find some of the stories that have slipped through the cracks in the news coverage. Um, many times what happens, uh, you have some kind of event, historic event, right? And people's perceptions get sort of fossilized in amber at the outset. And as new information becomes available, uh, it never really sort of percolates down to the public consciousness. And I think there's also something like news fatigue that can happen where people form their their perceptions at the outset and yet you have more information that comes in and, uh, you know, it just sort of people stop following it because they've, you know, uh, been looking at it um, for, you know, for months, right? And so uh, they get tired of the story and they think they know everything there is to know about it. So way back in episode one, I described the pattern of arrests uh, that had already developed to that date. Now, the first group to be arrested were people who were already known to authorities, uh, and also people who made themselves conspicuous in some way, either by acts of violence or because they did themselves, they did something that made them stand out from the crowd, right? So, Jacob Chansley, of course, in his face paint, uh, the so-called QAnon shaman, who uh, claims mystical powers, um, or Richard Bigo Barnett, who put his fa- feet up on... Nancy Pelosi's desk while he was, uh, you know, armed, apparently, uh, with a stun gun. Um, So some of the people in this first first wave of arrests were people who were also just very violent, and it's understandable why law enforcement would make them a priority. Now, the next wave came from people who are just sort of conspicuous on social media, um, mainly because they posted incriminating evidence of, of their own crimes, right? So these people are a mix, some of them facing allegations of violence, some of them facing less serious charges. But uh, the main characteristic of this wave is that they were just easy to identify because of the strong digital evidence linked specifically to accounts that were held in their names, um, in essence, you know, confessions even, right? Just incredibly self-incriminating testimony about their own acts on public platforms that really made the job of the FBI. Uh, and the Assistant U.S. Attorneys, very easy. Now, I think we're mainly done with this second wave of arrest. These are the low-hanging fruit kinds of people, which leaves us with the third wave, which are people who are harder to identify. Many of the people arrested in this category um, have been identified from data from their own electronic devices, geolocation hits that place them in the Capitol during the time of the storming of the Capitol, right? So we've seen any number of these people identified on the basis first of geolocation data, and then agents, you know, take the time to track them down, and that that's not a quick process. Um, And you can see this in the affidavits. Agents have to link these accounts from phone records to individuals, then they have to identify these individuals by finding photos from the day of the insurrection matching them against verifiable photographic documentation of identity, usually driver's license photos, sometimes passport photos. And finally, by approaching people known to the individuals and asking them whether these people are the individuals in question. So many of these suspects have also been identified by tipsters. Sometimes, you know, family, friends, coworkers, workers acquaintances, um, Facebook friends, or even uh, anonymous internet sleuths. But all these leads, again, also have to be verified, identities confirmed by the same means uh, that we see in the cases where they are identified with geolocation data. So all that takes time, and that's why it's taken over five months to get to 500 arrests. So that leads us to the question of who's left. Um, Two weeks ago, FBI Director Ray testified before the House Oversight and Reform Committee and he said that he anticipated hundreds more arrests. Now, he's obviously in a better position to know that than I am, but he didn't really explain in great detail why he thinks there may be hundreds of more, so I spent a little time thinking about what evidence there is that would support what he said in testimony before Congress, right? Because he's not going to lie, you know, in testimony before Congress, he's going to tell them, you know, truthful information Although it may not be the most accurate information, um, because it, it concerns an ongoing investigation, right? You you don't want to say, oh, there's 669 people, and then you know, people get outraged when you only deliver uh, 652, right? So um, just generally just sort of, yeah, there are gonna be hundreds more. Um, now it looks like most of the cases based on geolocation data from inside the capital have been charged or are in the process of being charged. And again, these are, you know, compared to uh, someone who doesn't, where, where you don't have that information, it's relatively easy to bring because they're in the restricted building and the data itself is pretty ambi- unambiguous. Once they have the name of the account holder, they can match that to photographic evidence and interview people who can then identify the suspect. So, brings us to the question of, who are these hundreds of defendants? If we are running out of people inside the building who are uh, identified either through social media or through uh, geolocation data, well, it could be some of these people uh, who are out. You know, were people who were smart enough not to bring their phones, right? So, in which case, they're going to be relying mainly on tipsters. Um, another group of people are people who attacked police outside the Capitol, but who did not then enter the Capitol. Now, um, initially, I wouldn't have expected there to be too many people like that. Uh, You might imagine that someone who traveled all the way to D.C. to storm the Capitol might want to actually enter the Capitol once it's been breached. But if you think about the events of the 6th of January, it's pretty easy to understand why not everyone who might have assaulted federal law enforcement may have actually then gone the extra step of entering the building. Um, The fight is, is last, you know, quite a long time, and they're exerting themselves quite heavily. Some of them may have been injured. Um, they may have been demoralized by, you know, by being sprayed with chemical irritants. And some of them may have had a change of heart at the last minute saying, oh my goodness, you know, bad enough that I've, I've assaulted federal law enforcement. Uh, let's not make th- anything worse. Who knows? Could be any number of reasons, but there's an indeterminate number of people who were fighting Capitol Police, Metropolitan Police, outside the Capitol, who may not have then entered the Capitol uh, to be taken, to have photographs of them taken inside the Capitol, uh, or to be identified through geolocation. So, so far it looks like the majority of cases that are built on geolocation data are cases from inside the Capitol, to date. That might be for technical reasons, but it could be what I mentioned before, right? Um, These cases have been prioritized because they're easier to prove, easier to bring, and that merely being in the Capitol is an offense. Now I've been thinking about this a lot and I have several hypotheses about the next group of cases that are apparent from the evidence. These are a bit tenuous, but I'll make the case for each of them and we'll see if they're borne out in the coming weeks and months. So I don't know if I want to call these hypotheses or intuitions, but essentially five things to look for in the next wave of cases. So first is that it seems likely to me that the next group of defendants will contain a higher proportion of charges of violence. You'll remember that in an earlier episode, I looked at a sample of 200 cases and found that 54.5% of them involved only charges that were such as things like being in restricted building, parading on Capitol grounds, and other misdemeanors whereas 44.5% of them included these plus other charges, uh, oftentimes charges of violence. So it seems somewhat paradoxical, um, but because these cases were easier to bring charges in, again, because the crime itself was merely being there, right? These earlier cases may have included a disproportionate number of less serious offenses. In social sciences, we call this a selection effect. So, the cases that are being brought earliest are those that are easiest to bring, and this includes many of the less serious offenses. So, brings us to the idea that perhaps the FBI is working, so to speak, from the inside out. From inside the Capitol to outside the Capitol. So, from later in the day after the Capitol has fallen to earlier in the day when the Capitol is is being attacked. The offenses committed outside the Capitol grounds are almost all going to be more serious offenses. This basic intuition is supported by a review of the photos of suspects appearing on the FBI Capitol breach page. There are a total of 1,175 photos in the gallery, and of these, 196 are of 94 individual persons already arrested as of today. These numbers change daily. Note that I said that photos rather than individuals There's no consistency with regard to the number of photos per suspect. A few of them appear to have as many as 10 photos, and a few appear only once. Um, There's an average of 2.86 photos per individual suspect, if you're really interested. Uh, Each identifiable person has been assigned a number, and there's 410 of these individuals in total. I might do a deeper dive on this in a later episode, particularly if these defendants, many of them, remain at large and uncharged. Uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. Of course, this is a gallery that's been curated by the FBI. The subjects are mainly wanted for more serious crimes, and most of the pictures appear to have been taken on the steps on the west side of the Capitol. The number one offense for these subjects uh, is AFO, assault against a federal officer. And there's uh, 647 photos of subjects who are of interest for assault or a federal officer, so um, so again, these are all people who are charged with violent crimes, and there's an important difference between these type of defendants and many of them who were charged with simply being inside the Capitol. Um, they were actually posting on social media while they were committing their offenses. They were busy, you know, <laughs> unlike the, the people who were wandering around. Right, they were posting on social media while they were committing their offenses. People who were fighting the police. Not so much. Uh, so again, that's an investigative resource that's not available uh, as it is uh, for many of the so-called misguided tourists. Um, and because they didn't post these pictures, they're just inherently a little harder to track down as a class than many of the people who simply walked in. And uh, you know, when the barricades were removed on the east side of the, the Capitol by the Capitol Police, so first sort of thing to look for more violent defendants in this next tranche of uh, affidavits. Second thing, it's likely that many of these defendants have already been identified and investigations are proceeding against them. In the cases that have been made so far against other defendants, the FBI appears to have had tips weeks or months ago. Removing the photo of a suspect before charges have been filed might be a tip-off that the suspect's about to be arrested, and so further tips may yet not you know, yet revealed valuable information. So there's no way to know if the, the majority of the suspects who are up on the FBI's page have been identified or not. My supposition is that many of them have been. Now, theoretically, 843 of these images are of subjects who have not been identified. But my supposition that is, you know, again, many of them probably have been. Um, they're currently the subject of investigations, but they can't take those photos down because, again, that would be a tip-off might pose a flight risk. So if you look through the photos, you'll see that they're very good quality, uh, particularly the Axon body camera photos. Those are the cameras that are worn by police. And just from the angle, you know, I mean, if you've got a camera on you and you're fighting with someone, you're probably gonna get a very good picture of them. Uh, and that the cameras themselves uh, appear to uh, function uh, okay with that regard with regard to the definition of the photos. Um, if you go through, again, many of these people look to be very recognizable some of them are wearing some kind of face covering or gas mask or you know sometimes uh you know surgical masks sometimes bandanas um but many of them are not right and um they're you know even when they wore a mask many of them at some point remove their mask um so they have images with of people with masks and without masks and um you know many of them uh, are identifiable, you know, due to, like, personal identifiable clothing, right? So, you know, uh, I recall one guy who's wearing a Michigan hat, uh, University of Michigan. So, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, little things like, okay, well, let's let's look at Michigan. I mean, unless he's clever enough to, you know, uh, you know, wear, wear a hat from somewhere else, who knows. Um, but I'd like to go through an example of one defendant who appears to have been identified early on, but is only now facing charges. This will be Kevin Douglas Creek of Georgia, and he owns a roofing company. He faces seven charges, including assaulting federal law enforcement officers, and he was the subject of a tip from an informant on January 10th. The charges weren't filed against him until June 6th. So this shows that with the volume of suspects and the volume of tips, it can take some time between initial identification and the filing of charges. I expect that this means that there's going to be many more charges in the pipeline. Much like the defendants already charged, again, many of them are wearing personally identifiable gear, and some of them have clearly identifiable tattoos video, uh, visible. And when they, you know, they, they will then screenshot that from the video and uh, put a close up, if they can, of the tattoos. I believe there's one bald fellow who has an entire head uh, tattoo um, that. Somebody's probably identified Batman, right? Um, now, I don't know, you know, if you can read too much into the priorities of the Department of Justice on, on the order, uh, but 31 suspects are also wanted for assaulting the media, and none of those people have been arrested or charged yet. So, um, again, it, it does imply that there's some kind of system or decide the order in which they proceed in these cases. I'm sure that they regard the cases of assault on the media as uh, just as serious as the cases of assault on federal officers. Um, So it could be a variety of reasons, but the general pattern seems to be they're working from the inside in, out, right? And they're working from later in the day back into earlier in the day, and they charge the defendants who made it into the Capitol first, and then they're gonna charge people who are committing offenses earlier in the day on capital grounds. Could be, anyway. Uh, we'll see, and that's a, the nature of a hypothesis, right? We can we can actually examine whether or not this is correct as time moves forward. All right, so that was the second thing. It's likely that means these defendants have already been identified. The third thing to look for is that the clearance rate for these cases is going to be exceptionally high. And I know I've been saying something like this all along, um, but I did a little bit more of the math on this, and uh, I can explain uh, the explanation, go into a little bit more detail about why that's going to be the case. So, of, and by the way, there are many in, individuals so far who are, um, whose photos never appeared on the, the wanted page um, for some reason. Um, so, doesn't necessarily mean that there's only 410 people that they're looking for. It's just that there are only 410 people uh, who have photos up on the page. So, 410 in total. 94 of them have already been arrested, and the numbers assigned to the cases correspond closely with the arrest order. So what does that mean? Well, that, that means that these are the p- cases that they started working first, and so the earliest cases have the lowest numbers on uh, the page, and so they are occasionally adding new photos to the page, and they are uh, also uh, marking the individual defendants as arrested uh, when that happens. So I went through and looked at all 410 to see if there's any kind of indication of what kind of clearance rate we're gonna have. What is a clearance rate? Well, first off, that is uh, if someone has been identified, right? if they've been investigated and charges have been filed, um, and then the the person's been arrested and the case has been transferred for prosecution, that would be considered for the FBI to be, or any department really, part of the clearance rate right that case has been cleared they can move on so of the first 10 numbered people uh 6 of them have been arrested of the first 20 16 have been arrested of the first 50 29 have been arrested right so again that's the earliest tranche of cases of the first 50 29 have been arrested from case number 50 to 118 have been arrested from case number 101 to 150 24 have been arrested. From case number 151 to 200, only 10 have been arrested. From case number 201 to 250, only six have been arrested. From case number 251 to 300, only five have been arrested. And from case number 301 to 410, only three have been arrested. So again, you can see the effect of working a case longer, right? The cases that have been in earlier, have a much higher clearance rate. So the earlier, the lower numbers, there's a priority. And these are the cases that were added first, and some of them because they you know these were people that the FBI took a special interest in for some reason. Um, but the, it's the earliest cases that really show us what the overall clearance rate is going to be at the end of the day. Um, if you look at who the, the lowest, numbered people are, by the way, on that page. These are people that they wanted to get because, you know, they made themselves conspicuous. So they got added first. Um, And they include some of the most notorious people, such as Dominic Pizzola, uh, the proud boy who broke a window to gain access to the Capitol. Josiah Colt, the Idaho man who dangled off the balcony, if you remember uh, that fellow, uh, at at the balcony of the gallery uh, at the Senate. And John Shaver, the heavy metal guitarist and oath keeper who signed the first plea agreement and agreed to testify against other members of his gang. So the chaos of the events outside means that someone has had to go through all the video, all the media footage, all the social media footage, and the Axon body camera footage, identify individuals, and look at individual assaults, right? They say, oh, that guy is punching an officer right there. That's a charge and then add these new images as they become available. And so, you know, it's a daunting task. It takes a lot of time, and it appears to be still ongoing. All right, so let's compare the clearance rates here with the overall FBI clearance rates. So again, clearance rate is a percentage of cases wherein charges are filed, the subject has been arrested, and turned over for prosecution. So for 2018, the uh, most recent year for which I can find the rates, the clearance rates of the FBI are as follows: murder and non-negligent manslaughter, sixty-two point three percent; rape, thirty-three point four percent; robbery, thirty point four percent; aggravated assault, fifty-two point five percent; burglary, thirteen point nine percent; larceny theft, eighteen point nine percent; and motor vehicle theft, thirteen point four percent. So, if you look at the first fifty cases the clearance rate so far is 58%, which is slightly higher overall than the overall FBI rate for aggravated assault in 2018, but lower than the rate for murder. Of course, they're not done yet, right? Which are, I'm assuming most of those murder cases, they don't have high-quality video available, as they do uh, for the Capitol riot, uh, capital insurrection defendants. Most of the cases, you know, um, Again, they're, they're you know they're very well documented, right? And they're going to assign these cases a, a pretty high priority. The capital insurrection itself has been called the most well-documented crime scene in history, and that assessment seems accurate. Um, so the differences in clearance rates overall probably due to a number of factors. The clearance rate for aggravated assault is probably as high as it is because, by definition, it means that there's a living victim who can testify. As is the case in these assault cases outside the Capitol, right? Whether they're assaulting the media or they're assaulting officers, there's someone who can testify uh, and identify the assailant. And it also seems that there's a relationship between high clearance rates and the amount of effort that the FBI presumably would put into these cases. Uh, they probably investigate murders with a lot more vigor than the average burglary, for example. Uh, I think the amount of effort that the FBI is going to put into these cases is going to be almost unparalleled. The FBI is probably under considerable pressure to demonstrate that they're providing good taxpayer value. The budget for 2021 is $9.8 billion, every cent of which is authorized by Congress, who was just attacked by a mob. And so... The FBI is going to have to produce results. If, the peop- if there are people who can attack Congress and on video and get away with it, what's the point of authorizing billions of dollars for the FBI every year, right? There's accountability. The people who do direct oversight of the FBI were attacked by a mob. And so I, there's every incentive for the FBI to take all of these cases very seriously. It could be the case that you know a few of them are going to get away, but it won't be for lack of trying. Um, I'm not an attorney, but my advice to anyone who assaulted officers at the Capitol or did any other shenanigans would be for those individuals to turn themselves in. Show contrition. Ask for mercy. Admit you were wrong. Admit that what you did was based on lies and that you were mistaken. You're willing to pay the penalty for what you did and uh, cooperate against anyone with whom you may have conspired. I'm not qualified to offer legal advice, but you know people ask questions such as, "Why is Jasline Maxwell in being held in pretrial detention?" Well, she's being held in pretrial detention, not just because you know Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, which he did by the way, um but because you know she managed to elude capture for a year, right If you elude capture for a year and you give signs that you know you're the kind of person who isn't going to stand up in court. And face the consequences of your actions, you're you're not going to get bail. You're you know if you go to trial, they're they're going to take all these things into account. As a criminal defendant, you're going to want to be cooperative. You're going to want to demonstrate contrition, and you're going to want to admit the full nature, extent, and wrongfulness of your acts. So if you know anyone who fits that description, that's what you should tell them. The fourth thing to look for in the upcoming uh, indictments is that geolocation will also be used to identify these suspects. So a common pattern that we saw in the cases against many of the misdemeanor defendants who allegedly made their way into the Capitol is that they were identified using geolocation, and then their identities were confirmed by other means. Um, I believe that we're going to see this also for defendants who don't appear to have entered the Capitol and who may have committed offenses outside the Capitol. So, for example, there's a case of Shane Woods, an Ohio man who owns an HVAC business. He wasn't charged with entering the Capitol, but rather for offenses committed on the grounds of the Capitol. He's facing eight counts in total. It makes some sense that the FBI might prioritize his case because his conduct is alleged to have been particularly violent as he attacked both members of the media and law enforcement including a brutal attack on a female officer that he appears to outweigh by at least 100 pounds. Uh, you could say that, you know, again, This is there's video evidence of this. Um, you know, allegedly, uh, it looks like she was tripped, but that really actually understates the violence of the attack to say that she's merely tripped. Uh, she's thrown to the ground very hard. And he's alleged to have launched a very similar attack, uh, also on video. Against a cameraman. It's like this guy knows one takedown and he just goes around and does it against people. Um, in both cases, it's, it's unprovoked and it's uh, like blindsiding attacks, right? They're, the victims are entirely unawares and it's really just cowardly. Um, so, according to the FBI affidavit, Woods was identified by unspecified investigative means. So we don't know if it was geolocation um, or if it was a tip. There, there were also tips, um, but it we don't know, again, what identification took place first, but they did use geolocation to confirm that he was present during the fighting outside the Capitol. And they also backed that up, of course, with his credit card records, his driver's license and passport photos. and testimony from two witnesses. Again, common procedure for what they, they're doing in these cases. So they had a tip in that case, and they used geolocation to back it up. But there's no reason why it won't work the other way around as well. Now, for subjects on the west side of the capital during the fighting, it, it could be a process of elimination. By looking at all the numbers scoring geolocation hits in that area at that time, they'll be able to find the subjects wanted for crimes of violence, Through the process of elimination and make that go more quickly by also using tips. So they can round up the subjects they have information on via tips first and then go after those who remain unidentified. So, between tips based on video evidence and the ubiquity of cell phones, uh, it seems well within the technical capacity of the FBI to charge all these suspects given time. Which brings me to the final thing, hypothesis, thing to look for in the next. 500 or however many uh, charges, cases that they're going to bring. And that's simply this. that It's going to take some time. It's simply not the case that the FBI is slow rolling the charges against these defendants. It's going to take some time. Uh, I'll use the case against another defendant to illustrate why this is the case. The defendant in question is Robert Morse, M-O-R-S-S, a graduate of Penn State, a military veteran, and a substitute teacher. Morse is believed to be individual number 147 on the FBI photo page. And individual 147 is identified in many different videos of the violence at the Capitol, attacking officers, destroying property, and directing other insurrectionists. He's the kind of violent subject that I'm sure the FBI would be looking to apprehend as soon as possible. Now, according to the Charging documents sometime before February 20th, 2021, the FBI received a tip from someone who wouldn't give any identifying information other than their first name, and they claimed that individual number 147 was Morse. The FBI corroborated this information through the usual means that we've seen again and again. They interviewed four separate individuals who were known to Morse in a professional capacity, including one who said that he suffered, that is to say, Morse suffered unspecified mental distress from his service in the military. The FBI also accessed bank records showing that Morse had used his bank card at a gas station in Falls Church, Virginia on January 7th, apparently on his return trip to Pennsylvania from the Capitol insurrection. So today, Morse is facing four charges. Honestly, looking at his affidavit, it's entirely possible that this could be amended. It seems to me that he may have been undercharged for his alleged behavior. But what's significant about Morse's case in this context is that he's also the subject of nine other tips. And they talk about this in the charging documents. Uh, I'll read what they have to say. Quote, The FBI also received nine tips indicating photograph 147 was someone other than Morse. A review of those complaints revealed the following. For the tipsters alleged photograph 147 quote looked like the person they were reporting on. One tipster advised photograph 147 quote looks very similar to the person they reported on. One of the tipsters was 50% sure it was the person they were reporting on, but they had not seen that person in approximately 25 years. Another tipster reported on a person who was 40 years of age and the tipster had not seen that person in seven years. Uh, Morse is much younger than that. I think he's in his late twenties. Two other tipsters were not certain there was the person they were reporting on. In all the tips, your was able to acquire pictures believed to be the person the tipsters were speaking about, except for two. The pictures acquired did not look like photograph 147. In all the tips received, no tipster provided any corroborating information that the person they reported on actually traveled to Washington, D.C. and participated in the riot at the Capitol. End quote. All right, so you can get some idea how it is that the FBI can get a tip identifying Morris sometime in mid-February, and yet don't wind up charging him until June 10th. Not only do they have to determine that the information in the tip upon which they are acting is correct, They have to follow up on all the incorrect tips as well in order to rule out mistaken identity claims that might provide a legal defense at trial. So if they get 10 tips and one is a hit, they still have to investigate the others as well. Part of the problem the investigators may be facing isn't that they don't have sufficient accurate information, but rather that they have too much inaccurate information. They have to winnow the chaff from the grain and sort out the signal from the noise. So that's why I think some of the recent charges tell us about the individuals yet to be charged. Many of them will be charged with crimes of physical violence. Uh, again, more so than in, let's say, the second wave of the, uh, call them misguided tourists. Um, it's also likely that many have already been identified, and so that the overall clearance rate, again, given the digital data, given the geolocation, is going to be high, and that geolocation is going to be identified. It used to identify individuals outside the capital, just as it's been used to identify individuals inside the Capitol. But even this won't speed things up too much. So we'll still have something like, you know, two, three, four, five cases coming in on a weekly basis. Because the FBI is going to have to take some time to investigate all the leads, even those that prove to be incorrect. So those are the guesses I've made about how this investigation is going, according to uh, what we've seen in some of the most recent cases that, again, the media isn't reporting on nearly so much as at the outset, right? Um, it's no longer national news uh, to the extent that it ever was. Um, they've, restified, uh, they've arrested the, the most sort of, you know, uh, photogenic or iconic suspects a long time ago. Um, but... Honestly, many of the people now they're they're left with are um, relatively more anonymous and yet also uh, more violent than the average defendants to date. But no one really knows how it's going except for the FBI and the Assistant U.S. Attorneys, and it's their job to remain completely and utterly silent on these kind of questions. I began by referring to Director Ray's testimony when he refused to tell Congress anything specific about the number of cases the Bureau was investigating. I guarantee he has a better idea than his estimate of hundreds more. But of course, it's better to be imprecise in testimony than it is to be caught up accidentally understating or overstating the actual number. So, again, in keeping with our theme of, you know, 500 arrests um, in this milestone, I'd like to look at some of the various blind spots and blind alleys and misconceptions uh, starting with my own and, that are you know sort of circulate you know that I came into this with, and that some of the ones that I think that are also circulating a little bit in the media and on social media and uh, the the vast uh, you know uh, disinformation pipeline that is the the modern internet so in process of researching this week's episode, with regard to the question of whether the next tranche of defendants would be more or less violent than those charged to date, I had to find some way of ascertaining how violent the 500 who've been charged to date are accused of being. I tried and failed to find one charge all the defendants accused of violence would catch. I had thought that engaging in physical violence in a restricted building or grounds would capture this. Um because it's it's the one charge that one would think everyone who took part in actual physical violence re- would receive, but that's not the case. There are some defendants who are charged with assault against a federal officer who are somehow also not charged with physical violence. Um, nonetheless, most of those charged with assault have also been charged with this charge of, again, physical violence in a restricted area or grounds. So. In order to get some sense, again, of the the level of charges of uh, violence against the first 500 defendants, um, I tallied up some of the allegations that have been leveled so far. So, 94 defendants to date have been charged with some variety of assault. 75 defendants to date have been charged with engaging in physical violence in a restricted building or grounds. 49 have been charged with offenses involving a dangerous or deadly weapon. So some of them carrying, you know, it's, a, it's illegal to carry it on Capitol grounds, for example. Uh, and um, many of them, I think, 29 uh, actually using a deadly or dangerous weapon uh, during the civil disorder at the Capitol insurrection. So the Venn diagrams of these groups of defendants don't overlap completely. Some of the defendants who are charged with using a dangerous or deadly weapon, for example, aren't charged with engaging in physical violence on a restricted grounds. So I think one concern is that they don't want to be, seem like they're overcharging, right? Uh, you'd think that by definition, everyone who assaults an officer with a dangerous or deadly weapon would also be charged with of physical violence in the capital grounds or buildings, but that's not the case. Some are, some aren't. So I'm not asserting any kind of special significance to this with regard to questions such as whether or not they're overcharging or undercharging any particular group of defendants or any particular defendants. Those are questions that are best left to the professionals at the Justice Department. Just from my reading of the charging documents with regard to charges involving physical violence, they don't seem to be using a a one-size-fits-all approach. They seem to be issuing charges based on the best evidence available, and that's wholly appropriate. Now, it is a, a bit interesting. So you have, you know, like, maximum, right? Uh, you know, Even if you include, like, charges of impeding, you know, less than half of the defendants um, engaged with, you know, physical force against the, the police on the 6th. Um, so you have, you know, a couple hundred people. Are they really going to be able to overwhelm the 500 capital Police officers who are on duty that day? Uh, the hundreds of uh, metropolitan police who were on duty that day? I don't think so, right? Um, so there are probably many more people, and the, the again, the, the still photographs attest to this, there are many more people out there who engaged in physical violence, who are being investigated, may have been identified, and um, probably have cases there in the pipeline. So... Um, one charge that they are, by the way, sort of spraying around quite a bit, is the charge of of obstructing or impeding an official proceeding, uh, 18 U.S.C. section 1512 two. Quote, anyone who obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. So this is a felony. And again, um doesn't really matter what the official proceeding is, right? So it just so happens that you know certifying the Electoral College vote, even though it's largely symbolic, um, is an extremely important official proceeding for a democracy. Um, and yet this charge can be leveled at someone who, you know, disrupts the, the most uh, minor committee hearing. But nonetheless, this is a felony charge that they appear to be using uh, against people, because again, you know, the, there's no question that the mob did obstruct the proceedings of Congress that day. They were able to successfully delay the certification of the Electoral College vote by many hours. So it's certainly appropriate. It seems like an appropriate charge. I would think you probably put it on everybody, but the AUSAs, again, perhaps because they don't want judges to say that they're overcharging, uh, are deploying it, judiciously, but not indiscriminately. So, the reason why, again, I thought it was interesting to tally up the charges of physical violence uh, was because there were 500 capital Police on duty. And you know, it's an interesting question, at what point are officers going to be overwhelmed? Two to one, three to one, four to one, so part of the reason why I think many more defendants are going to be charged. Uh, the officers are wearing Axon body cameras. And if the police really were overwhelmed, we're going to see very good digital evidence of that, right? So uh, complicating the issue is that there have been many, many issues with Axon body cameras in the past. So it is possible that some of the cameras may have been malfunctioning, right? The images that are online are very, very good. They're very good quality, and um, it's kind of damning. Right, Because, you know, you've got someone literally caught in the act of attacking an officer by a camera that's mounted on the officer uh, themselves. Um, There have been problems in the past, especially with uh, shootings of unarmed people, especially black people in this country, of officers not turning on their cameras. Um, But I would think, or hope, that in this instance... Um, where officers, you know, they knew backup wasn't coming and they knew they were being attacked, uh, would have taken the time to turn on their cameras. So I have a suspicion that most of the officers had their cameras on. We've seen uh, digital evidence coming out of those cameras already, and it could be the case that they are going to be uh, putting up more of those images. So there have been questions about their quality of sort of the, the tech infrastructure in the federal government. Um And it's, you know, could be a case that maybe some of these cameras weren't fully functional, right? There are lots of things that were not fully functional on January the 6th. But, you know, could be the case that, the, the, again, more dig, digital evidence is going to be uploaded. By the way, it's worth noting that Axon, the company that makes the cameras used by the Capitol police, uh, has positioned its brand as a means of holding police accountable. And also, of course, of keeping officers safe, right? And this, you know, they always say, well, not only does this document police behavior, but it documents attacks against the police. And this evidence has been used many times in many proceedings against criminal defendants. But also, after the murder of George Floyd, Axon CEO released a statement that read in part, quote, We need racial reconciliation and hope. We stand with the African-American community. All lives cannot matter until black lives matter. Axon commits to real action, building technology that helps eradicate racism and excessive force in the justice system. So there's already a lot of, quote, um, there's already a lot of digital evidence from the Axon products that are definitely, you know, have already been used in these cases. Um, but it's, it's an open question uh, whether or not there were, you know, problems with the functioning of these products or whether or not uh, officers actually turned them on. So I don't know if they captured every uh, assault on a federal officer at the attack. Which brings me now to another subject that's been bandied about in certain media circles. The question of whether the government ought to release all the video from January 6th. Um, Various media outlets have been claiming that there's some sort of conspiracy involving the attack. Well, there is, right? But some sort of conspiracy on the part of the government, and the government is failing to release the video from the Capitol insurrection as some kind of cover-up. Um, that claim simply reasonable. right? It's a bad joke. I, I try to keep my language as neutral as possible, but this is just an absurd farce. And the people who are making this line, uh, you know, they're 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 just guilty of the worst kind of pig ignorance imaginable. This is evidence in an ongoing investigation, and the media outlets who are taking this line, you know, they like to mention, I believe, the the, uh, figure that there's 140,000 minutes of unreleased footage. Well, yeah, right? Um, They should ask themselves, when does the government ever release evidence in an ongoing investigation? And the answer is never. That's not a thing that happens. And I explained the process whereby they're putting up these photos of defendants who are assaulting officers. It makes sense, right? They're still reviewing that 140,000 minutes and determining, you know, picking out people in the crowd and saying, oh, this person threw things at the officer here, this person was spraying bear spray at the officer there, and then posting them online so that the public can identify these defendants. So they're claiming that the public has a right to know, but in fact, you know, many of these same media outlets also claim that a bipartisan congressional investigation of the Capitol invest, uh, insurrection is unnecessary, right? So, you know, the same people who want the video to be made available um, also don't think that we need further investigation. So the entire episode of the Capitol is just proven to be problematic for the kinds of media outlets that have. Push these fraudulent claims of election fraud that appear to have motivated many of the insurrectionists. It was clear from the beginning that they wanted to blame the violence at the Capitol on BLM and Antifa. Um, the problem with this claim, of course, is it lacks what we call face validity, right? Um, many of them earnestly expected BLM and Antifa to be there, and they weren't. So, um, you know, they were already preparing the story, And immediately on that day, they issued that story. And even, you know, people who might be inclined to agree with them um, have had a hard time, you know, accepting that line. Because again, you can go down the list. And if people ask you about this, I would encourage you, you can literally go down the list and point to individuals and say, is this person Antifa? Is this person BLM? And it's like, no, these people all have documented histories. We know who they are and we know what has been motivating them. So it seems to me that, uh, you know, these same outlets are just trying to invent new ideas that uh, they can use um, because this, this, you know, the BLM Antifa line has failed. And uh, even if you're just, you know, someone who de- tells you these big whopping lies, you know, that one just was a-, a bridge too far. It was something that was just too hard for people to Except, and so now they, they're, they're starting to spread the idea that the FBI was somehow behind the insurrection, right? And they point to charging documents and they'll say, this person, uh, unidentified person one, right? Um, this is boilerplate language. This is standard language in charging documents. When you have someone who is a witness, uh, who, you know, is not identified, um, doesn't mean that that person works for the FBI or is an FBI informant. This is a witness. And there are reasons why we don't uh, necessarily identify witnesses uh, in this connection. So I don't think that that line is going to be particularly effective, particularly if you know anything about the FBI. Right? It's just, um, you know, despite some of the excessive things they've done in the past, um, they are also uh, people who are not, you know, actively plotting coups against the, the United States government. Uh, they are very... Serious-minded people, um, and yes, there 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 have been some things in the past that you know COINTELPRO, right? Um, you know, you can look into that. Uh, that is just you know <laughs> some horrific uh, examples of the, the kinds of excesses that have been deployed against people, um, you know, in politics, just you know because of their their political opinions. Nonetheless, you know. It, it's not within their daily they've never done anything of this sort, and um you know every example that they're pointing to, you can actually identify uh the, the witness that the the charging documents are pointing to it's It's not the fbi it's just someone that they aren't naming in the affidavits so the overall strategy uh by this sector of the media appears to be just throwing enough feces at the wall and see what sticks um some people call this the Chewbacca defense, by the way, right? You just distract people, redirect them, and eventually you can just steer them where you want them to go. When I talk to people about the capital insurrection, one of the extraordinary things I oftentimes encounter is the extent to which people have made up their minds already without necessarily doing any research or looking at the facts or going to the FBI page and reading a single affidavit. They've been told what to think. And they are perfectly willing to accept that uh, without necessarily, you know, <laughs> look, u- using the same kind of standard of, you know, doing their own kind of investigation. These people claim that they've done the research, but they've just, they're just parroting things that they've been told. Um, to some degree, that's kind of understandable, right? I mean, this is a complex case, and so, you know, the average citizen is just of necessity going to, to simplify the facts. Um, Personally, one of the things I've tried to do in preparing for this podcast uh, and also as a political scientist generally is to be open to new facts myself, to be open to new data and not be particularly invested in my own preconceptions. And I think that's a great social science habit that would serve all of us well in life in general. So, for example, months ago, before I started the podcast, I developed a spreadsheet to keep track of as much information on the various defendants as I could. And one of the things that I'd assumed at the outset was that um, many of the defendants were going to be people from the states that made up the old Confederacy. Or rather that uh, people from the states that comprise the old Confederacy would be overrepresented in the arrests at the Capitol. And I had what I thought were some good reasons to believe that. There were Confederate battle flags flown by people taking part in the insurrection. Um, Trump's strongest base of political support in the run-up to the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections were all it was in the South, right? And there's just this long history of angry Southerners getting together to engage in political violence, So, which we talked about in the episode on the impunity of white mobs. Also, as a, as a white Southern man myself, I was kind of primed to believe that that's who these people were. Um, problem was that that simply wasn't true. The de- defendants of the Capitol insurrection are, broadly speaking, distributed according to state population and by proximity to Washington, D.C. So um, there are more people people from states that are relatively close, right? Uh, but similarly, uh, there you know, I think 45, 46 states. So, um, it's just not the case that, you know, there were more disproportionately speaking uh, defendants from uh, the Old South. And so, I revised my opinion, right? That's how it's supposed to work. Um, By the way, uh, there's also Professor Robert Pape from the University of Chicago, uh, who came out with a rather interesting take on the geographic distribution of people facing charges in the capital insurrection. He looked at it on a county by county level. And uh, he had initially come to the the question that uh, with the idea that his initial hypothesis was that defendants were motivated by economic insecurity. Um, And so he was looking at economic data on the county level. um, And he found there was no relationship, right? So again, what do you do? Well, you do what he did. And he tried to find a different explanatory variable um and he wound up uh in his paper that's on the website his website at uh well it's it's from the um chicago project on security and threats homepage at https uh, colon backslash backslash cpost chicago edu Backslash research backslash domestic underscore extremism backslash. Uh, if you look for Robert Pape and C Post, you'll you'll be able to find it. Um, he he basically winds up finding that uh, it was mainly from counties with a declining proportion of non-Hispanic white population, right, that were more likely to send insurrectionists to the capital. So you know, a lot of people came out uh, and and said, well, yeah, we knew that, right? You thought it was economic security? No, guess what? It was racism. But nonetheless, again, great example of someone who, you know, in social science, if you expect to find one thing and your hypothesis isn't supported, you should find some other explanation. Um, And that's what he did. So he did, you know, exactly what you're supposed to do. If your initial hypothesis isn't supported by the evidence, you should absolutely look for plausible alternatives. And yet, um, as as much as, you know, uh, the the idea um, is somewhat appealing, um, to my mind it might be somewhat more basic than PAPE's paper suggests. There are certain commonalities that stick out to me in the data. Uh, These people were disproportionately white, male, and they came from nearly every state. And they were also more likely to be a veteran of the military than the population as a whole, right? So, some ten percent of the defendants uh, are military. Eighty-five percent of the, the defendants um, are male. Are sorry, are white? Well, actually, it's about the same for both. Anyway, um, but one of the most important selection effects, to my mind, anyway, um, is simply the question of who can take time off in the middle of the week to go storm the Capitol, and. Um, you know, this is, is uh, a question that, you know, seems, I don't know, it's a practical question, right? I will just assume that the, the distribution of people who are motivated to engage in political violence on behalf of Donald J. Trump uh, are actually distributed all across the nation. Um, and there may be many thousands of them, but the question is, who can actually go in the middle of the week, travel all the way to D.C., um, and uh, engage in this kind of behavior, right? Uh, if you work a regular nine-to-five, um, and that's most people in this country, you're, you're not going to be able to do that. Um, it's kind of interesting, one of the critiques you oftentimes see of left-wing protesters by the, the far right is that, well, these people are out protesting and they don't have jobs, and yet, you know, they had a pretty good turnout in the middle of the week. Um, so, part of this would... What I'm leading up to is this question of, what do these people do? That they can go and do this in the middle of the week. Uh, many of the people I've spoken to regarding the capital insurrection have this idea that the capital attack was a, a blue-collar phenomenon, right? Now, I don't find that to be supported uh, by what little data that we have. Um, we don't have occupational data on every defendant, but I have compiled a list from news stories, uh, and then, you know, cross and text it on the spreadsheet. Uh, so something like a quarter of the people. Uh, and I'll go, th- go back and go through and try to find more occupational data when I can find it. Um, I know it's not common to simply recite raw data, but I think the actual occupational list from the capital insurrection defendants is going to give you a feel for who the insurrectionists are. If you're a blue collar guy and you're working a job and you got a shift on Wednesday, you're not going to the Capitol, right? So, a lot of these defendants, in fact, were people that the selection effect is that they have either free time or they set their own schedule uh, or they have uh, independent financial means uh, whereby they can just go to the Capitol on a whim, even if they live in Hawaii, or even if they live in California, and um, go participate uh, in an insurrection on behalf of Donald J. Trump. So, I, I think that the list itself gives you a feel for who was at the insurrection that goes kind of beyond just uh, statistical analysis. Um, but one thing I think it does make clear is that it's just not the case that this was predominantly or even disproportionately a blue collar insurrection. There were a wide variety of professional occupations represented at the Capitol insurrection among the defendants, among those who were facing allegations, uh, charges, including attorneys, physicians, CEOs, and people who work in uh, the healthcare and tech sector. So, um, these are just, you know, granted, I mean, some of these folks are unemployed, right? You had William Cressman from St. Louis, uh, the proud boy, um, who was disabled, uh, who, you know, when he, at his bail hearing, he said, uh, you know, the judge kind of, uh, I don't want to say read him the riot act, but, you know, told him, well, if you were really that disabled, why did you bring an axe handle? to uh, swing at federal officers all the way in, in D.C. Um, but uh, probably the most common thing, I think, is that uh, you know, in addition to uh, retirees, right, There, are, there are many of these people are old enough um, to actually be retired. Um, particularly if you look at law enforcement and military, they have much shorter, uh, they, they can retire much uh, sooner than most people uh, who work in the private sector. Um, so, I'm just going to end this week's episode by reading the list of occupations of current capital defendants, with the understanding that it's incomplete and data is not available for, for most defendants. Um, I'll do that after taking care of some business, but, you know, if you want to skip the part at the end, you can consider this the end. I, I take no offense. Um, next week, we'll be looking at the, the most violent defendants in the capital insurrection, based on the number and type of charges they have received. Uh, none of them ha- are, are people I've actually mentioned so far. I did you know, a case study of one of the more violent defendants, but uh, I'm not sure Mr. Jenkins is actually going to make this list. There are some people who have an awful lot of charges, and so I think we'll do a top ten, maybe with an honorable mention or two, uh, with regard to some of these defendants, who, again, you know, I don't think have necessarily received a, a lot of media attention, particularly the ones who've been charged, identified, and charged later, uh, simply because there's there's some kind of news media fatigue on this question. Also, I'd like to take a moment to mention that the Capital Insurrection Report is now on Twitter. So, if you have any questions or comments or other information that you think would be useful to the show, tweet me at cap. I-N-S-U-R-R-E-P. Cap Insurep. Right? At Cap Insurep. I'll I'll put it in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. Please recommend the podcast to your friends. Please rate and subscribe. All right. The list of occupations I promised you. Lawn service owner. Web developer. Army, retired. Owner of a gym called The Gym. Security guard. FAA. Physician. Hunting guide. Geophysicist. Registered nurse. Fire department of Sanford, Florida. Homemaker. United States Marine Corps. Uh, that's actually retiree. Army, Army Reserve, Iraq combat vet, again not active duty. Army combat vet, again not active duty. Guitarist, Iced Earth metal band, our friend John Schaefer. Rabbi, Messianistic Judaism. Banker, attorney, owner, Crazy Coons Armory. That Coon with the C, no relation. And they may be using it in another sense there. I'm not sure they're referring to raccoons. Um, United States Marine Corps infantry vet, American Conservative Union, tattoo artist, CEO, Domino's delivery driver, former Army National Guard, Army combat veteran, telemarketer, elder care business owner. Butcher, uh, Kyle Fitzsimons from Maine. United States Marine Corps, retired. President, Search Ingenuity, LLC. Appliance store owner. Music teacher. Former Army medical specialist. Former United States Marine Corps. Peace Corps. Army Reserves. Gym owner. Homeschool Mother, Monmouth County Corrections Department, Fitness Model, NTMTA, Certified Public Accountant, New York City Sanitation Department, Former United States Marine, Retired Firefighter, Rental Property Manager, U.S. Army, Retired, U.S. Army, Retired. Ammunition sales shop owner. Cheese and yogurt maker. U.S. Marine Corps. Retired. Chester Fire Department. Retired. CrossFit gym owner. Love lot of gym owners on this list. Goodwill employee. Army veteran. Retired public safety. Realtor. Owner, Black Lion Realty. Moving Company Owner. Employee of Murder the Media News. Realtor. Owner. Kissing Tree Vineyards. Disabled Veteran Army. Owner of Flower Shop. Our friend Jenny Cudd. Bakery Shop Owner. Houston Police Officer. Lieutenant Colonel. United States Air Force Reserve. Retired. Rocky Mount PD, Rocky Mount, Virginia. Uh, Army National Guard, former Marine, and another Rocky Mount uh, officer, Army Reserve, Army combat vet, U.S. Navy veteran, combat vet, packing company employee, and some of these claims, by the way, I'm not necessarily sure uh, they're backed up. Uh, there have been some media reports of some people, you know, I don't know if it's stolen valor, um, but there, there have been a few. I right, kinda like I'm not I'm not sure um, on this, you know. I mean you can buy the hat, but you know, uh, might be good to see some documentation. Anyway, veteran claimed University of Kentucky student works in construction, Bail Bondsman, former Marine Captain, combat vet, railway company manager, UCLA student. Retired New York Police Department, former Marine. Same person. North Cornwall Township Police Department, patrolman. Military veteran, unspecified. Nurse anesthetist. Former yoga and tea shop owner. Another one, a sort of these, a fair number of these sort of new age, earthy, crunchy people on this list. Uh, Owners of, you know, perhaps businesses that were affected by the the coronavirus shutdowns. Air Force vet, dying cast company maintenance tech. Nurse, former Tennessee National Guard, medical sales, house painter, retired New York firefighter, insurance adjuster, president of emergency meals and provisions. So that's one of those uh, survivalist outfits, right? making, I you know, dehydrated food for people who like to have dehydrated food in their basement in case of the apocalypse. Owner of SimSum Tea Shop in Silva, North Carolina. Um, for the state I, I like to visit uh, quite often here in North Carolina. Lovely town. Former account manager at OKC Thunder, I, I believe is that basketball team, anyway. Or maybe it's soccer, not sure hair salon owner actor i think that's chansley actually I'm not sure he actually acts but that's his profession claimed semiconductor technician navy veteran former police officer marine corps veteran realtor doctoral student at kansas state university disc jockey united states marine corps iraq veteran former Trump State Department Special Assistance uh, Bureau for Western Hemisphere Affairs. That's our friend Federico Klein. High-rise restoration worker. Roofer and oil field worker. That's actually Shane Leiden Jenkins. Tattoo artist at his Casa de Delore parlor. Homemaker. Fruta Bowls franchise owner. That is apparently some sort of fruit bowl place. I'm not sure. Owner, Sandwich University restaurant. U.S. Army veteran. Owner of cleaning services company. Owns an electric business. Apprentice electrician. That is actually an electrician and his apprentice who traveled to the capital together. United States Marine Corps former USMC. USMC combat vet. Civil Air Patrol. Citadel Cadet, that's that's the Citadel, the military academy in uh, South Carolina. Civil Air Patrol. Owner of Tactical Citizen. Again, another sort of survivalist gun culture affiliated business. Veteran, son of two police officers. Same person. Uh, I just mentioned that there's some two police officers because it was in the media reporting. Not police officers themselves, just sort of law enforcement adjacent, if you will. Business Owner. Construction worker, correctional officer, wife of Shaler Township Police Department detective. I believe, um, former wife, actually, he divorced her. Former Army Special Forces, general contractor, general contractor. That's actually, uh, I believe, a married or unmarried couple um, who came and, yeah, (laughs) came to the Capitol. So again, they could probably make their own schedule. Farm worker. Electrician, unemployed, defense contractor with security clearance, probably that last part, probably revoked, one would hope. Pilot, volunteer firefighter. Billing manager, volunteer firefighter, not an occupation, but um, yeah, good for them for volunteering. The Lifestyle coach, again, more sort of earthy, crunchy, new age people. Um, It's amazing how much, you know, I think some of this disinformation, if you believe in one kind of woo-woo nonsense, you're more apt to believe in another. Lawn care. Married to deputy. U.S. Army veteran software engineer. Owner motor coach business. National guard. Tree remover. Auto body shop owner. Retired New York police department. Bartender at Longhorn Steakhouse. Farmer, um, he owns his own farm. I, I list the website here. Uh, it's in New Jersey. Active duty United States Marine Corps artillery major. The one active duty person, uh, a, a major, um, in the Marine Corps, serving you know, in artillery. Love Insurance adjuster, second one of those. Realtor, another realtor. JMZ Contractors, engineer, former Navy. Uh, This man owns his own business, I believe, in Washington State. Agent at Wormafix Automotive, former Marine. Works at Bob's Trading Post Restaurant. Music teacher, former firefighter. Physician's assistant, former Marine. And that's it. All right, thank you so much for taking time with me this week, and I will be back next week with the most violent defendants, people facing the most charges, of allegations of violence at the Capitol Insurrection. Until then, I'm Scott Kuhn. Have a lovely day.